study God's word together. That's um, something that, it's great. It's great, and we serve a great and, and gracious king, and part of that is getting to see what he has to say to us in his words. So uh, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, would you open it to Mark chapter 8, and that's where we're going to be at today in verses 31 uh, through 38. Now, uh, when I'm not interning in New Hampshire at uh, King's Cross Church, I am in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I'm from South Carolina. I'm Southern, um, so I, I apologize. <laughs> and uh, I go to school in Louisville, and I work at a hotel. Uh, it's called Legacy Hotel, and it's at the, the campus of the seminary that I attend. And inside of this hotel, in the lobby, there is a fireplace, and well, uh, this fireplace really isn't real. It's a, it's a fake fireplace. It has uh, lighting, a fog machine, um, and some fans that create the illusion of it. And so, uh, when guests come in to the hotel, they're pretty predictable. Uh, they'll walk in and they'll see me at the front desk on one side of the lobby, and they'll say, well, that's a really big bearded man over there. And then they'll look to the other side of the lobby. On the other side of the lobby, they see this fireplace. And like a moth drawn to flame, they'll go over to it. And they do the same thing. Everyone's predictable. They go over there and they wave their hand over it. And then they look at me and they say, is this thing real? It's like, dude, if that was real, you'd be feeling it. And like kids, they're just, I get yelled at by, by parents like I'm encouraging their kids to play with fire. Listen, I just work the front desk. I don't, I don't, I'm not in charge of the smoke machine. And so sometimes we'll have people in there because it's a seminary, they're being like super holy and they're fasting and praying and sitting and talking together. And I'll have to go um, water the fireplace. I'll have to, the, the, the fireplace has little water tanks. And so every four to six hours, I have to go refill it. And so these people will be, you know, praying and they'll look over and their minds are blown because I'm sitting here watering a fireplace and like little kids, it's like Disney. Um, they just, they cannot believe it. And so they ask, how do you do that? And I, I always respond because it's a Christian context. I feel safe in saying it. I say, it's, a, it's another Christian paradox. And so, <laughs> and then I just walk away. I leave, them, I leave them alone. And so the passage we're looking at today in Mark chapter 8 verses 31 through 38 has two ideas that seem to contradict one another, of a powerful and victorious Savior, our King, who won salvation by suffering, and then of his disciples who gained life and joy by bearing a cross, of the Son of God giving up what was his by right to, the will, to, to live in the will of the Father, and then of the joy obtained by their, his disciples at a price of denying the world by bearing a cross of self-denial and suffering for his name's sake. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. But before we look at that, there's two little principles I want to start off with. Uh, before we read God's word, we have to set the table before we read. Like any good meal, we need to make sure that we have our placemats, we have our plates, our forks, our knives, our spoons, our salad bowls. We need to make sure that the food's actually on the table so we're not getting up in the middle of the meal to get the mashed potatoes or, or whatever it is. So our meal isn't plagued with interruptions. And so when we come to God's word, there's a few things we need to make sure we get in order in order to make the most of God's word, the meal of God's word. And so the first and most necessary way to set the table for someone who's hoping to gain insight from God's word is to realize the book that he or she is holding. You are holding in your word or in your, uh, in your hands or in your phone God's word. You're holding the very words of God. And because this contains the words of God, what it says is authoritative, and I live under the authority of God's word. I also believe that the Holy Spirit's greatest work 
in growing believers, sanctifying believers, but growing believers in, into the image of God, laying aside sin and, and living in faith in God is inspiring men thousands of years ago to write God's word. I think that is the grandest way in which the Holy Spirit is, is going to show you what God has for you in this life. And so because of that belief, I take God's word above mine, God's direction above others, and God's promises above my circumstances. Another way we can set the table when we look at studying God's word is to look at the context of the passage being studied. We need to understand the context it brings in order to understand the meaning that passage holds. So the two things we can set the table is to understand the authority this book demands and understand the context this passage brings. And so when we read this passage, um, let, let's start our, um, with prayer after we read. So read with me. I'm going to start in verse 31, and I'm going to end in verse 38. And Jesus, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If any of you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what can it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to help us today. Lord, we come um, with simple faith, Lord, in your word. And we're asking for your help in these moments, these few short moments we have. Lord, would you teach us something? Lord, would you give us insight into this passage, into these very words? Um, enlighten something we might have never seen before. Lord, and if it's our first time, would you open our hearts to this passage? Lord, we want to make great of your name. We want to make great of your name in Jesus. Lord, I ask what is true of this passage to stay and to, to form our hearts. And Lord, what is not true of this passage and not true of your word to fade away and be forgotten. Lord, would you remove the fear and would you, Lord, would you give me a teachable heart? as I look at your word yet again. It's your name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so in these verses that follow this passage we are studying, there's a big question that Jesus asks Peter, and Peter answers this question correctly. Uh, up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has done some pretty amazing things and said um, some pretty amazing things as well. So there's authoritative uh, signs he's given. He's healed people. He's fed people. It, Jesus is a celebrity and so everybody's asking in their heads, who is this guy? And, and, and Jesus, knowing that people are wondering who he is, he goes to one of his disciples, Peter, and he asks him, hey, 
who do the people say that I am? And, and Peter goes, well, some people think you're a prophet and some people think that you're John the Baptist or maybe you're Elijah. And that's, that's cool, that, and that was right. Most people thought that. And this, this, this little question that Jesus asked, that question was really leading Peter and pinning him in a corner for a second question, which was huge. And it was a question that required a non-neutral answer. Uh, there's a pretty big event going on this November in this country. And like probably most everybody in this room, you've probably had an awkward conversation about this event coming up this November about one of two people or two people. Um, there is um, bo- both candidates, uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. There's no real neutral answer you can give to when someone asks you about that. If, if, if I was to ask, because I'm new and I'm from South Carolina, uh, and I come up to New Hampshire, and I, I ask Jacob, hey, Jacob, you know, I'm not from here. What do people think about Hillary Clinton, or what do people think about Donald Trump? And, and, and Jacob can go, well, you know, people feel this way towards this person, and they feel this way towards this person, and based off of the population, I would say the election would swing this way. And that's really cool, and that doesn't really require much um, sacrifice on his, on his side. But if I was to ask Jacob, hey, Jacob, what do you think? about Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. I, he's he's got he's to stick with something. I'm going to know exactly what he thinks because there's so much baggage on both sides that there's, it's just you're, you're done. And so this question that Jesus is asking Peter requires no, there's no neutral he can give. And so Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And so he either views him as less than he is, as ultimately a good moral man, a prophet, that he's just, he, he's, he's a good guy, a, a man of God, but he's not the Messiah. Or he's going to proclaim that, Jesus, you are in fact the Messiah, that you are greater than a prophet. And what we see throughout the gospel is that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And so Peter's answer is, you are the Christ. Peter just testified that Jesus was more than a, than a man, but the, but the God-man, God's chosen Redeemer, and though man... Jesus was also God. And so Peter uh, claimed that Jesus was God's anointed redeemer, but Peter's idea of the Messiah, as most Jews, was of an authoritative figure that would literally topple over the present present kingdom and establish a physical one by force, by authority, and surely not by death. That would never be in the picture. And so like Peter, we don't perfectly understand God. There's a lot of things that we can grow in. We give the correct answer, but as far as our category of God, we don't have it fully developed. And Jesus, like the good and gracious King and Savior that he is, he takes Peter's answer, though correct, not fully developed, and he takes that as a teaching moment to show what is the Messiah and what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. And so we see in this next section, um, in in the first few verses of of this passage, what Jesus has to say about him being the Messiah. And so I'm going to read it again and have this context in mind that, that Peter just, just stepped out of the crowd and proclaimed that he is this Messiah. And he began to teach them, saying that the Son of God, the Son of Man, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so what we see in this is that Jesus, the Messiah, 
the Savior, for those who would believe, must suffer many things. Must suffer many things. Must be rejected by the religious leaders. Must be killed and must rise again. That that must happen. Do you see the purpose in that? God's will was that Jesus suffer, be rejected, die, and then rise from the dead. And so what we learn from this section about the Messiah is that if we're going to have a Savior, we must have a suffering Savior. This is how salvation was won for us. And so some of you might be asking right now, why would I need salvation? And why on earth would I need someone to win it for me? And goodness me, why does that require someone to die? Well, I'm glad that you asked that. The answer of this, to this is found when way back in the very first few chapters of the Bible in Genesis, in creation. Man created good in relationship with God in the garden, decided to live apart from the rule of God. And when man decided to live apart from God, doing so by breaking the one commandment that he, that he was given, man sinned. He missed the mark. And because of that, sin entered the world and things are no longer the way that it should be. What was once good is now changed because of sin. And so from that point on, God's judgment is upon us. We are enemies of God. And Ephesians 2 verse 3 says that we're children of wrath. Like all good judges or kings or rulers, God being that, a good judge and a good king and a good ruler, cannot let wrong go unpunished. If you speed, you get a ticket. If you murder a guy, you go to jail. If you commit treason, the, the punishment is exponentially greater. And we committed treason against our creator. The creation rebelled against the creator. And so uh, we are not only condemned due to Adam's sin, but we condemn ourselves when we do not live under the rule of God and honor him as we should, as Romans 1 would say. The opposite of rule, living under rule or the law of God, is lawlessness. And 1 John proclaims that sin is such, that it's lawlessness. Paul Washer says the scariest truth of the Bible is that God is good. And the reason why this is scary is because we look at ourselves and we see that we are not. Look around you and know that's true. Go hang out with little kids. Our only hope is that someone and somehow the justice of God is satisfied apart from us. Ultimately, it has to be by a work of God. This is the sad reality of every human that has ever lived. We are all in the same boat. I'm in the same boat as you. And we all await judgment if nothing in this picture changes. But guys, that's not the end of the story. And praise be to God, that's not the end of the story. By God taking on flesh and living among us, a way was made for sinners to be united with God. By Jesus living that life that we couldn't live, a life that enjoys the rule of God internally, not just in external appearances, by living, by not living in lawlessness, but living perfectly under the law of God, by dying that death that we deserved for our sins, and all of this was done in perfect obedience to the Father. God was glorified, given the honor that he was due and a, made, a way was made possible for sinners to be united to God. By Jesus living the way that man was intended to live, and by doing so as God's appointed redeemer, as the God-man, God's judgment was satisfied, we can be freed from sin, and we can have union with Christ, where the Father looks at us, and he sees his Son. This is the gospel, 
And this is the good news, that Jesus took our place in every bit of it so that we could be made right with God and find freedom from the false promises of sin, ultimately finding what we once looked at and looked for in sin in God through Jesus. And at the same time, God's character is magnified. His justice is put on display as well as his love. And so that's why Jesus had to suffer. That's why if we're going to have a Messiah, we have to have a suffering one. Because the reality is if someone didn't take our place, we would be condemned forever in suffering. But God in love sent Jesus. And so Peter tries to rebuke Jesus for saying these things in verse 32. If you look about what the Messiah would be, he didn't agree that, that Jesus would be suffering. He rebukes him. Remember, he said, you're the Christ. And, and then Jesus goes on and he says something completely different. Now, why would Peter rebuke Jesus? It's because he didn't have the same idea of the Messiah. His category, didn't, it, it couldn't fit suffering into that. He understood authority and he understood victory and he understood that, that God is all-powerful, but he didn't understand that there's a paradox, that, that, that Jesus had to suffer in order to prove victorious for us. And so think about how Peter feels. The, the, the Messiah's suffering in this life? No, 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 no. Jesus, you got it all wrong. Messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs are above suffering, and, and you're the Messiah. You don't have to die. You, you can just save us. You can just save us. And then, and then Jesus, in verse 33, rebukes Peter. Why does he do this? Because the good news of the gospel is that the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, suffered, was rejected, and died in your place. Peter didn't understand the necessity of the cross. If God did not do these things on your behalf, humanity's hope of overcoming the fall of Genesis 3 would be gone. We need a Savior to take our place. Peter wanted Jesus to be exalted in the here and now and save us. And it was Jesus' right not to suffer. He was God. He was perfect. He didn't do anything wrong. But as we see, for him to have lived would have been our death. Someone had to be punished for the guilty party to be redeemed. And so it's on this backdrop, a suffering Messiah, that Jesus in these next verses teaches us what it means to be a disciple in view of this Messiah, the suffering Messiah, and of his gospel, Jesus teaches his disciples to follow because, Jesus, because God suffered, was rejected and killed for our sins because he rose from the grave claiming victory over sin. Salvation was won for us. So if we don't understand how Jesus functioned as the Savior and perfect disciple, we won't understand what it means to be a disciple. If you don't understand how Jesus functioned as the Messiah and as the true disciple, you will not understand what discipleship means. Your category will not, I want to be a disciple, it's not going to fit and you're going to find frustration being a disciple of Jesus if you don't understand how he functioned as your Messiah. So it's in the shadow of Jesus' cross that we carry ours. So when you hear these next couple verses and what it means to be a disciple, don't think of payment to be made. When you hear, take up a cross, deny yourself, don't think that you're paying something back to God because that's not true. For as we've seen, Jesus lived a life we are incapable of living and died a death that we deserved so that by faith, not works, by faith, we could be made right with God, his justice satisfied, that we could be 
freed from sin, we would have redemption and we would be united in union with our Savior Jesus Christ as a child of God. The working out of salvation of being a disciple is not a keeping of salvation, but a response to that salvation which was already awarded to you. The labor of discipleship is not the labor to win God's love. It's the labor of God's love working itself out in you. The gospel of Jesus is a deep, deep well. A deep, deep well that the grandest and the greatest and the darkest of sinners can plunge themselves in and be completely sheltered from the wrath of God, his justice, and from the slavery of sin. And so let's look at verse 34 through 38 again with this context in mind of our Messiah. In calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So in these next few verses on what it means to be a disciple, two easy points. I go to a Southern Baptist seminary. They train us on three. I'm a rebel. I say two. And so we have the call for discipleship, and then we have the grounding for this discipleship. The grounding for this discipleship. The call for discipleship is easy. It's in the first verses what we see that let him deny himself, take up your cross, and third, follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Now one, one thing that we do whenever we read a story is we want to see um, what characters we're supposed to be like, what characters we're supposed to avoid. And so, so far in the story, in your head, what character does this sound like so far in the story? What, what main character does this sound like in the Gospel of Mark? I would say Jesus. It sounds a lot like Jesus. Let him deny himself. That's what Jesus did for your salvation. Take up your cross. That's ultimately what Jesus did on your behalf. And follow me just as Jesus followed the Father while he was on earth. So from this we see in order to faithfully follow Jesus, we have to deny ourselves and we have to bear a cross. To deny yourself is to not have yourself as the object of your affections. That the, the object, the, the seat of your very inner being, what, what is your number one is not you. To deny yourself is to say, you know what? Something else, something else before me. To bear a cross means to suffer. It means ultimately to be willing to give up uh, that which is most dear to you for the sake of the cause. For murderers, it was, I'd, I'd kill for that person. I'm gonna kill, for, I'm gonna murder that person and I would, I would willing, I'd be willing to go to a cross. The, the, the punishment outweighs the reward. For traitors, and for, um, yeah, for traitors, it would be the cause of whatever it was against the establishment. I'm willing to die for this cause this cause means more than my life. And for Christians, we're willing to go to a cross. We're willing to sacrifice ourselves and our lives for our master, for Jesus. And so, though the world and Jesus 
are not compatible because you can't have both. You cannot have the world and God. You have to deny the world in order to get a Savior. So though the world and Jesus are not compatible, joy and suffering are. Though the world and Jesus are not compatible, joy and suffering are in Jesus. And so some of you might be asking, why suffer? Why would I suffer? Why would I deny myself? And why would I be willing to walk to my execution? Because the truth of the matter is, those that carried crosses, 100% of them would die on a cross. This isn't a weird crossfit exercise where you just pick up a cross and you run five miles. It's execution. And so, and then also, just a those that go against the current, those that go against the world will suffer. That's just a matter of fact. And so um, suffering shows the worth that you place on the object that you're suffering for. Like when you're in middle school and, and your friends did something wrong and the teacher gets to you and says, hey, Caleb, what happened here? And you look at your best friend in the corner and he's going, and you don't tattle and you take detention. You would rather have popularity, friendship, acceptance than to not have detention. Or this might miss um, some people that are only children, but if, if, you, if you have a brother or sister and you had an action figure when you were a kid, you were willing to die for Batman no matter what your brother or your sister did for, to you. Like my brother would try to twist my arms, he would bite my ears, twist my fingers, but I would not let go of that toy. And so for us, we're willing to suffer to hold on to what is most dear to us, which is Jesus. The reason why you would deny yourself is because joy is found in something other than yourself. That's good news because it doesn't take long. You look inside yourself and you say, well, that was fun, but I can't find this. There's no joy to be found within us. It has to be outside of ourselves. And we, in the gospel, the good news is that it's found in Jesus rather than yourself. And so Christ's followers do not seek a present heaven, but a future heaven, and a heaven that works on a totally different paradigm than the world. That's why the world and Jesus are not compatible. It's like Max and PC. The world is a, is a PC, and, and heaven's going to be Max. Um, uh, okay, I'm, I meant, what I meant to say was that the world is Max, and then heaven is, I can't say it, guys. I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a Mac guy. I love Mac. And so Christ followers live with a <laughs> Christ followers live presently with a heart leaning to heaven where fullness of joy is found in Christ. And so why another reason why we would suffer, another reason why we would suffer so that living by faith inclined to the to the rule of God, to the ways of God, we can participate in making his name great among all peoples making disciples of all nations, telling them the good news that the purposes they are seeking is ultimately found in God through Christ, that they aren't good enough for heaven. But that's okay because Jesus is good enough. And that following Jesus is hard but simple. It's faith and repentance, a cross and joy. And we see why we suffer by how Jesus grounds us. The way that Jesus grounds us calls, he, he gives the, the calling, so deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, and he grounds us with a simple idea. Why would you try to keep your life and lose it? Or if you, if you try to keep your life, you're going to lose it. And if you lose your life, you'll keep it. 
And then he explains this by using a, a marketplace metaphor that why would you buy something at a higher cost than the thing being bought? And then he finally grounds this whole argument in one final ground, which is ultimate accountability for our present actions. And so this small ground, this, this small ground that Jesus gives for why we should deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, is that those that would save their life will lose it. And if you live free in this life, you'll die. In New Hampshire, the one thing I've learned from looking at license plates is that the, the state motto is live free or die. And I'm telling you right now that if you live free in this life, you do not deny yourself. You can live free in this life, but it, you change the or to an and. You will die. And he who would lose his life for the sake of the Messiah and for the sake of the gospel will live. If you deny yourself, world and Jesus are not compatible. Joy and suffering are. If you deny yourself, you will live. And so the logic behind this is seen in verses 36 and 37. Why would you buy something at such a higher price than the the object being bought? Why would you give up a Lamborghini for a Snickers bar? and, And why would you forfeit your soul that goes on to eternity for, for temporal pleasures in this life. The larger ground for this discipleship is that your present actions have future consequences. Choices made in this life will determine how you spend the next. And there are some people that have this illusion and false idea that when they die, they will get a second chance. And I'm sorry, but that's not true. Your choices today determine where you go in the future. And that door is open, but it's open until death. And then after that, it's suffering. And that's why we as Christians go and we suffer and we go and try to fulfill the Great Commission because we want, as beggars, showing others beggars bread, we're showing Jesus, please repent. Find joy. I know you're looking for it. It's found in Jesus. And so... If you deny Jesus, he will deny you. If you follow Jesus, eternal life is yours. Just as your Messiah suffered, you suffer. Just as Jesus reigns in heaven and is in glory, we will be able to participate in glory as well. So Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to carry our crosses and follow him as disciples based on the truth that if we live with Christ as the object and the seat of our loves in this life, embracing the suffering that this entails, we gain life eternal and we leave suffering in the past. There will be a day when suffering will be no more, but we will gain suffering and rejection in this life. And so the Christian call is honest, it's hard, but I would argue that life without God without the Savior, without the Spirit, without the church, a community that is something way deeper than just mere appearances, without inner joy is way harder than life without God. I would argue that there is more suffering for a man who chases false promises of sin in this life than the man who suffers yet walks with God. Both suffer, but one suffers from the effects of sin and one suffers for the cause of Christ. Like one person that overindulges in food and enjoys that, it ultimately will lead to death. If you eat cheeseburgers every day, your heart will stop. But on the other side, if you suffer, let's say you're training for a marathon, you know what? 
you give up the burgers and you start eating salads and you start doing protein shakes because you're looking to that prize, that goal of being able to say that bumper sticker that everyone has on their car. You know, I don't know how many, I don't think everybody runs a marathon <laughs> that has those stickers, but you are looking to that goal and you are slimming your body down and you're training every day. That's suffering, but it's suffering with purpose rather than just indulging and suffering and eventually dying. As Ed Shaw writes in, uh, on, on this very chapter in his book, this teaching doesn't end in self-sacrifice ultimately because what you're getting is the prize. It's our best interest in order to sacrifice now. And so what we learn from this passage, this little section, is that if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we must be a suffering disciple. If we have a Savior, we must have a suffering one. If we're going to be a disciple, we must be a suffering one. And so the first implication for this text is to expect to suffer as Christians. Expect to suffer as Christians and know that it's being used for our good. Just as Paul read in Romans 8, God is using these things and no matter what, you know, nothing in this world, even ourselves, can stop it. And so suffering was central to Jesus' life and it was for this very purpose that he came. He denied himself so that we could be made right with God. Because of this, we should expect to suffer and why would we expect anything more than what Jesus gained in this life and what he experienced. Suffering shows the worth that we place. Remember, like that toy you wouldn't let go, we hold on to Jesus. I don't care what you do, world. This is more to me than what you have to offer. And suffering also shows the characteristic and the nature of the world in which we live. We live in a fallen world, a Genesis 3 world. Genesis 3 is where the fall is, so when I say Genesis 3, that's what I mean by that. As Jesus suffered because of sin, will suffer because of sin. But we go down a path of pain, not alone, and not on a path that was never traveled before. Jesus went before you. Sin inflicted by self, by others, by environment, by circumstances, by lies we tell ourselves, by miscommunications of others, by predators, by governing authorities, by egotistical bosses, greedy employers, by abusive fathers, demeaning grandmothers, bullies at schools, by natural disasters, by false teachers who claim the title pastor and shepherd, shady neighbors, accidents caused by drunk driving, abusive cops or racists, by cancer that took a loved one, by drugs that enslaved a loved one, by extreme and unrealistic expectations marketing has placed on your body. These crosses are carried with a sweet fellowship with Jesus and with a church that is walking alongside of you carrying their own. Where Jesus' suffering led to greater good, our suffering is being used for our good in Christ. Don't seek heaven in this life. Just look at Scripture, look at yourself, and look around you. And you will find that if you really try to seek joy in this life, you're not going to get it. Something's going to hold you up. That's how sin works. It's false promises. So implication two of this text would be that God uses suffering for our best interests. And because of this, implication two would be suffer, both passively and actively suffer. Any Christian who wants to become more like Christ will have to share in his sufferings. 
And so the question is, how can we suffer for the gospel as a disciple of Jesus? And a very practical way of doing this in New England is suffering in your witness. We can suffer by living a life and sharing the gospel with people who disagree with us. That's suffering. That counts as suffering, sharing in the sufferings of the gospel. Every sinner has just as much of a right to hear the same gospel and respond to the same gospel that saved your soul. What could suffering look like? Easy gospel avenues for you would be maybe you give up a night alone with your family, a night alone um, having dinner, and you invite your neighbor over to have dinner with you. Well, you know, I had a long day, and, you know, I would love to spend time with your kids. Sometimes that's the more spiritual option. That might be the best thing for you to do in your spiritual walk. But it's an easy avenue to share in the gospel suffering. To, to nothing, no, there, there is no easier way to share intimacy and to gain intimacy with someone than sharing a meal with them. And that is the easiest way you can do it. Another way would be to share um, in the sufferings by financially suffering to make disciples, by giving to, to ministries that are great commission focused and making disciples of all nations. Maybe it's supporting your New England pastors. Uh, Paul and Jacob are here hearing me say that, so you guys both owe me. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, maybe it's spending money on a party um, and having people, friends, and coworkers. Easiest way to do it in New England, down south, we really don't care, is the Super Bowl. Um, Super Bowl party is the easiest way to, to, to join with someone and, and to bond. I mean, you just wear like a page. Like I was wearing a, a Boston hat and someone across from Starbucks, go socks. I don't even know this guy, you know, but that's like instant bonding right there. And so, um, you know, and I'm from South Carolina. I don't even like this. Oh, I like the socks. Um, and so another way we could do that is not compromising on what the Bible says. That hurts. That will hurt. But it's sowing seeds especially with November in mind, there are hot topic issues that are being discussed. You know what? I don't like so-and-so because they believe this. I don't like so-and-so because they believe that. Maybe it's the topic of abortion. That's a tough one because we all know people that are affected by that and that through their life circumstances, they chose to do that. And that was the, sometimes what they thought the best way to deal with that issue. And so they ask you, hey, so what do you think about abortion? Very easy for us would be, you know what? Like, I just kind of haven't really thought about it. Um, I like to major on the majors and then not minor, uh, you know, major on the minors. That could be the right answer, but you could also use that as a gospel avenue to say, you know what, let me tell you what the gospel says about life and use that as a moment to share the sweet love of Jesus. So uh, we can share in the sufferings of those in our city. Uh, in New Hampshire, as you guys know better than me, um, the, the, the state is suffering with the plague of false promises that illegal drugs offer. A person dies every five days in New Hampshire, or excuse me, in Manchester because of drug overdoses. And so what could suffering look like in this? Inconveniencing your life to help those lost um, in, in addiction or that are recovering from addiction. Maybe it means giving your time and resources to people that are going to abuse your time and your resources. But isn't that the gospel? That God loved people that were self-centered and would rather love themselves than God and neighbor? 
a very practical way for men to live this out. Um, and I want to preface this first. I'm not trying to get a shock factor here. That is not what I'm trying to do. I am merely seeing an issue that is not being addressed very well and that we could take very seriously. And I'm trying to say, how can we live more like Christ in this? And so please understand, I'm not trying to offend someone when I say this or to accuse anyone. I am merely trying to shed light to what the gospel says. But for men, a very practical way for you to suffer is to suffer in your purity. Though you are told this, it is not your right to have every freedom our culture offers, especially in regards to technology. The fight for purity has changed. What once required you to leave your home, to pick up your keys, to turn on your car, to pull out the driveway, to go to a store, to go and look through movies and pick one out and then be embarrassed to stand in front of a cashier and, and then go home and to indulge, can now be experienced in the privacy of your home where 70 to 80% of content is free and the highest of quality in any genre and any fantasy that you want. Porn can be viewed anywhere with almost any device and any fantasy is within your reach. The U.S. Department of Justice gave this statement concerning the radical nature and accessibility of pornography. Never before in the history of telecommunications media in the United States has so much indecent and obscene material been so easily accessible by so many minors in so many American homes with so few restrictions. Now, two things I want to point out. They're talking about minors, but don't be fooled. Guys and men struggle with it just the same as little boys. Second off, that was not a pastor or a church organization that said that. That was the U.S. Department of Justice that said that. One out of every five cell phone searches in 2015 was pornography. The likelihood of men struggling with this issue in this room is very high, and my plea is not out of love. I mean, it is out of love. Sorry. Wow. Sorry. Yeah. Surprise. <laughs> Plot twist. Um, no, no, no. Excuse me. Excuse me, I'm sorry. It's out of love and it's not to shame. This is a very common issue and it is everywhere in our culture. And so do not think that you're alone. You're not. But please don't stay in the dark about it. Please don't stay in the dark about it. It ruins lives. Sin by nature redefines and enslaves. You cannot play with porn and not be changed. It sexualizes the mundane life experiences and creates the illusion that women want to be raped. It promises a temporary high without the risk of intimacy or relationship. It's casual and expendable relationships is the lesson that it teaches. Don't play around with it. Um, if anybody's seen the TV show Breaking Bad, I think that's the best example of what sin does. The story is of a man named um, Walter White and he's a teacher and he finds out he has cancer and he has a wife and a son with special needs and, and he finds out he's about to die and he wants to provide for them. He has a good goal in mind. He wants to provide for his wife, provide for his kids. When he dies, that they'll be set. And so he starts cooking meth and by the end of the show, sin has redefined him completely. Where he once was a chemistry teacher, he's now a drug dealer, giving drugs and ruining lives to everyone. He's lost his wife and he lost his kids, and they actually, they weren't, they weren't set up. 
And that's what sin promises to do. Hey, are you struggling? Are you, are you feeling that you need intimacy in relationship? Look at this. This will fix your promise. But sin always does that. It can't fulfill it. It promises what the, only the gospel can give. And it'll leave you in the dirt and redefine you as something you're not or that you weren't supposed to be. So it's easy to live a life with no accountability. It's a cross to bear, um, to, to have accountability, um, to submit to accountability. And it's easy to live a life chasing relationships and fantasies and sexual lifestyles that God's word condemns as sin. It's a cross. It's a cross to deny yourself for a time or maybe a lifetime. But God's will and God's promises are bigger than your dreams and your desires. And so in conclusion, God's will is that you suffer, be rejected, and die if need be. For his name's sake. Not to pay for your sins or to show people how holy you are by the lifestyle that you're living, but to display the glory of God in your salvation and to invite others to participate in the same. Remembering that suffering shows the world what is important to us. It shows others that we would rather choose to suffer for this good news over anything this world can offer. And suffering is a part of this life, but there's freedom in Jesus. The world in Jesus, please, please, please. The world and Jesus are not compatible. You can't have both. In your category of disciple, it'll be frustrating if you think you can have a foot in the world and a foot with Jesus. Suffering is a part of life, but there's freedom in Jesus. His yoke is light. Jesus went down the path that we're called to go down as example and as victor. And the destination that Jesus ended up is the city of God, where fullness of joy is experienced by the weak who counted it all as lost in this life. If we're going to have a Savior, we must have a suffering one. Don't fear suffering. Don't hunt suffering. Please don't take away that I'm saying hunt for it. But embrace it and understand that God is using that because this week you will have opportunities and circumstances where life will hit you and you're going to suffer and you're going to ask the question, why? Everyone is going to ask that question. God's using that to grow you. And there is joy to be found. Don't waste your suffering. So when you have an opportunity to suffer for Jesus, embrace it. If we're going to be a disciple, we need to be a suffering one. Let's pray.